Well, you guys are probably used to, I don't know if you've caught the theme by now, but you, you're probably used to the third Wednesday being a Terra Wednesday. If you've, if you've been paying attention to the schedule, well, Tara is in Israel right now, and I tried to get her, you know, to go live from like the Sea of Galilee, but she just wasn't willing. No, I'm just kidding. I, I didn't even ask because she probably would have been willing to do that. Um, but here tonight we have uh, Gabby Brown, who Gabby is interning with us, and um, she is in seminary at Liberty University online right now. She's finishing up, and I've known Gabby for several years. Uh, she's at Northridge Community Church when I was there, loves Jesus, has a lot of wisdom, and so we get to hear what God's laid on her heart tonight. Please welcome to the stage Gabby Brown. Oh, hi. Um, as Dallas said, my name is Gabby. Um, just right off the cuff, I just want to say that I've been very blessed uh, by how welcoming and gracious that Grace Meadows has been as I've stepped into this internship. Um, and most of you, some of you know me, some of you probably don't know me. You probably know me more by my daughter with the cute little baby with the pink glasses that screams in the back <laughs> through every message. Um, but um, she's been one of the greatest new joys of my life. And um, as I've entered parenting, uh, it's been quite the journey. Um, before we start, I just want to go ahead and run through the scripture that I will be um, basing my message off of tonight. Um, so if you have a Bible or a phone and you want to flip there, and I think it might be on the screen, um, it's Romans 8, 31 through 9, 5. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, Amen. Now, before I entered parenting, a lot of people like to tell you 
how your love changes as you become a parent. The love of a good parent for a child is something unique. It's different from any other kind of love, perhaps other than maybe marriage. It teaches you how to be selfless, how to love unconditionally. I mean, from the get-go, you have to deal with all the dirty diapers, the consistent waking up in the middle of the night, and constantly being covered in a tiny human's bodily fluid several times a week, if not a day, depending on your baby. Parenting, in short, can give us a glimpse of what it looks like for God to love us. This is the message that I gleaned from parenting sermons, books, podcasts, other parents in my life before I welcomed my daughter. But when my daughter came into the world in a very unexpected way, I quickly learned that being selfless and unconditional was not the way that I saw my parental love right off the get-go. Instead, I saw how insufficient and broken my love is, even in my most selfless moments. My daughter was born about a year ago. Her birthday will be in about two weeks. Um, she was born at 30 weeks gest gestation. That means she was born two and a half months too early. Um, it meant that she would be whisked away to the NICU shortly after being born. It meant that she would have to live in the hospital for six weeks. It meant that I was discharged from the hospital without her. Um, and it meant multiple trips back and forth every day to the NICU for a month and a half. And after I first returned home from the hospital, this is when I was slammed with the realization of how inadequate my human love is. I realized that as a new mother, there wasn't much I could do for my newborn preemie who was living in the hospital half an hour away. Though I loved her desperately, I could not love her tangibly 24-7. I had to go home and sleep. I couldn't always touch her through the incubator. The inadequacies of my love were laid bare. But some circumstances in our life God allows them to happen so that we can see how truly small we are before his greatness. God's love is different. God's love can always reach us despite our circumstances. His love is perfect, and when we truly step into it, we will find that it pushes us into conformity with his character. This is the main driving point of the gospel. God loved us so deeply, he made a way for us to be saved, though our own human nature inherently opposes him. He did this so that we might become like him, so that we can be invited into his glory, so that we can make his name known from one corner of the earth to the other. So I want us to walk through this passage in Romans together and see what it has to say about the extraordinary power of the gospel. But first, I want to pray. Lord, I just thank you. I thank you that your love is just so unlike ours. I thank you that even when we think we are being the most selfless, your love is still even better and our love will never compare. Because of that, Lord, you are the only one who is worthy of honor and praise and glory. And I pray, Lord, that we will just seek that love every day learning how to be conformed to your character, 
learning how to teach others about you, learning how to depend on you, and to let you be the true source in everything, Lord. I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you will just speak through me tonight. I don't want this to be my words. I want it to be your words because we are speaking about you and your truth. Just bless our time together, Lord, and just be in every moment. In your name we pray. Amen. So picking up in verse 31 of our text, we read, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, have you ever been asked a question that you know you should maybe know the answer to? Deep down, you know what you're supposed to say in response to the question, but maybe the worries of life or how busy you are or your anxieties, they scramble your brain um, so that you can't quite get down to that truth that you know is buried down beneath everything. If you can recall a moment like this, then I would venture to say that you have some idea of what faced the ancient Roman church in the New Testament times. They faced persecution, they faced hardship, they faced um, inadequate living conditions. Um, some of these things we have faced, some of them we have not. Um, though we do not face all the exact same circumstances that the Roman church faced, we know what it is like to have troubles. Most of us know what it is to be in distress. Some of us have even faced danger. Some of us have even faced death. This is the type of framework that informs Paul's passage um, and informs his questions. And what we will see makes all of his answers that much more profound. Now, before we can say anything about this passage, I think we have to focus in on Paul's first question. What then shall we say to these things? What are these things? In order to understand what Paul is saying to, to tell, or what he is telling us at the end of Romans 8, we must first understand what these things are. And to understand this question, we must have an idea of what the book of Romans has said up to this point. Paul's letter to the Romans is easily his most densely theological work in the entire, entirety of the Old Test, uh, New Testament, the Old Testament, sorry. <laughs> Um, he wrote it towards the end of his life and ministry, so it is safe to say at this point that he's had a lot of time to refine his thoughts, his theology, um, and put something out there that's worth saying to the Romans. When he speaks of these things, he is referring to an argument that starts all the way back in chapter 1, um, and then is something that he carries throughout the entire letter up to this passage. And at this point, some of you are maybe getting a little uncomfortable in your seats. You've heard me say entire letter. And you're wondering how long is she going to talk? <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not going to keep you here all night. Um, but I am going to attempt to cover some of the key points of the letter um, that I think are important leading up to the text, even though it sounds a little intimidating. If you would like to follow along, we're going to jump back um, to chapter 1. We're going to be jumping around through some verses. Um, I think they'll be up on the screen, um, but you can follow along in your Bible or your phone, whatever you would like. 
but at some point I would encourage you to try to read the entire book of Romans on your own because the teaching of the Holy Spirit as you read the book in his presence is going to be much better than my inadequate message. So Paul begins to explain these things in his overarching statement for the book found in chapter 1 in verses 16 through 17. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And now over the next eight chapters, he's going to take that statement, the power of the gospel, and he's going to break down what it means for those who live by faith. The power of the gospel first reveals to us that we are undeserving of its gracious work for salvation. As chapter um, 3, verse 23 tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God in his consistent mercy, he makes a way for humans to be justified not by following a strict code or a set of rules, but by obedient submission of faith. In fact, he promised such a way, such a way to the fathers of the faith, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, in chapter 4, verse, verses 14 and 15, tell us, for, it is, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but there is no law. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Paul makes it clear that people are presented with a choice. Whether they live under the way of wrath that's brought about by sin and death, or by the way of the spirit that is freely given through the grace of Jesus Christ and faith placed in him. By living under the authority of the spirit, we choose to die to the powers of sin and death and to be raised in the life of Christ. As Paul says in chapter 6, starting in verse 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. By breaking away from slavery to sin and death, we can have this assurance when Paul says in um, chapter 8, verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the trials and the suffering of this world, while we must face them, are nothing compared to the glory and hope that are partially um, given to us now and then partially awaiting us in the future. Therefore, when we look at the statement, these things, it's actually much more dense than just the two little words on a page. We see how perfectly God has woven together the story of the gospel. We can see that Paul's questions in this light are rhetoric. He's not giving us answers. He expects us to already know them. Who can stand against us? No one, because we have risen in victory over sin and death if we are in Christ Jesus. Who can bring charges against us? No one, because God is the one who judges and justifies us. And now we get to the big question, the most famous question of the passage. Paul places it last in this set because he wants to elevate its importance. And he brings it um, in the climax of his letter. 
Starting in verse 35, we read, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, can you fathom a love like this? We like to say that we can. Some of us might like to repeat this verse. But can you actually fathom the depths of what Paul is saying? The smallest problems on earth and the biggest problems cannot separate you from God's love. Small worries like if the shirt look, if that shirt you put on this morning, if it looks good on you, or the overwhelming worries of if the, where's the money going to come from to pay the bills this month? None of that can separate you from God's love. Even the most intimidating supernatural powers, the greatest existential topics and questions you could come up with, they cannot separate you from God's love. In short, God's love for you is not defined by or limited to your circumstances. I want to say that again because I know that I myself can get wrapped up in the, this confusion from time to time. Maybe you do too. God's love for you is not defined by or limited to your circumstances. But as I said, I know this truth can be hard to believe at times. Sometimes God's love is like the heat of the sun as the seasons shift through the years. During the summer, the sun's heat feels blazing hot, and you start to sweat sometimes instantly when you walk outside. In the winter, it's pretty much the opposite, at least here. The sun hangs in the sky, you acknowledge that it's there, but its touch feels subtle, so subtle it can often be imperceptible. But it's the position of the earth that, that, that determines how it receives sunlight. Our relationship with God can look the same as we go through some of these stages of life. Some days his love is strong and vibrant. You feel it so boldly. You feel it instantly when you wake up in the morning. But other days, it seems distant. You acknowledge its existence. I mean, it's hard not to. God is love. But you can't feel how it's affecting your life in the moment. But the strength of his love for you doesn't change and never will. How you choose to position yourself in your circumstances determines how you receive this love. If you have not walked through a hard season before or you're not currently walking through one now, you will inevitably walk through a season that tempts you into questioning whether God's love for you can reach you through its messy, entangled, heart-wrenching circumstances. Perhaps you have faced the unexpected death of a loved one. You don't understand why God would let their time be so short. Maybe you were diagnosed with a terminal disease and as you endure 
or struggle to receive treatments, you wonder why you have to be the one to suffer. Maybe you are or you will be like I was, watching a baby connected to tubes and wires, wondering why someone so small has to so quickly face something so difficult. There are some things in life that just don't make sense. And perhaps they never will. That's not guaranteed to us. But do you know what also doesn't make sense alongside these things? The gospel. The gospel from our limited human perspective sometimes simply does not make sense. We have seen this by studying the points of Paul's letters. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we who are not righteous have been given a way to be made righteous. We who were once loyal to the law of sin and death are now invited to shift our allegiance to life under the spirit by dying to ourselves. In human terms, this shouldn't be possible. I don't know about you, but it's kind of incomprehensible to me how we can begin as enemies of God who are fully undeserving of salvation, but are invited into adoption in God's family. And you are called to join, you too are called to join the paradoxical nature of the gospel. You are called to believe in its power. You are called to be transformed by it. If we follow the chapter breaks in our modern day Bibles, it appears that this passage ends at verse 39. We can hear about how we are never separated from God's love. We can feel all nice and warm and fuzzy inside and we can tie a nice bow on the top and we can be done. We can close the Bible, that's it. But God's love does not simply stop at making us feel loved. God's holy love calls us beyond ourselves and pushes us into the best thing for us, lifelong conformity to his character. Therefore, we can't stop at verse 39 because the book of Romans is a letter. The letter's not done. The letter continues. And in the words that follows, I think Paul says something that's quite perplexing, starting at the beginning of chapter 9. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, did you catch the statement that I said is so perplexing? It's found in verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. And I don't know about you, but when I reread this passage and I read that verse, part of me was like, excuse me? What did you just say here, Paul? What, what is was happening? You just explained this whole rhetorical statement about how we can't be separated from Christ's love, and now you're saying that you would rather be cut off from it? But I think it's important to look at the exact wording of the passage in this case. 
Paul is not saying that he would rather be cut off from Christ. He writes that he could wish to be accursed and cut off. Although he can wish it, it is something that is quite impossible. After all, he just made this point in his rhetorical question. So what is the point of including this statement? I would argue that it comes about as a result of living under the law of the spirit. Paul has spent, a, not a lifetime, but he has spent most of his life conforming to Christ's characteristics and attempting to mirror his posture in building the kingdom of God. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 tells us, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Paul makes it clear that no one has lived, and in fact, no one will ever be able to live by the Spirit as perfectly as Jesus did. And what is so crazy about the gospel, it's right here in these words. Jesus, though he was fully God, was willing to leave the throne of heaven and become human for the sake of humanity itself. He emptied himself. He endured the hate of the world he had made, and he willingly died a brutal death, becoming sin, so someone like me, like you, like the person next to you, the person at work that you really don't like, so that all people have an opportunity to a life in God's presence. His posture became that of a servant, sacrificing himself for humanity so God the Father might be glorified over all. And as a result, Christ is now supremely exalted over all and is the greatest authority that we are, are called to follow in image. Paul understood this. He says it right here in Romans. One of his deepest desires is for his Israelite brothers and sisters who walk by tradition rather than the spirit. He could wish it. He could. He could wish to be accursed for their sake he would be willing to take a position similar to that of Christ, for it was Christ himself who commanded, take up your cross and follow me. But thanks be to God for the beauty of the paradoxical gospel, a gospel that declares that those who are first shall be last and the last shall be first, a gospel that says if you want to find your life, you must lose it. Christ paid the penalty so we might submit to the Spirit and never be separated from the love of God. But more than that, Christ died on the cross so we might become his ambassadors and join him in the work of building his kingdom. The gospel does not stop at chapter 8, verse 39. It does not stop with you comfortably sitting and being loved and never separated from the love of God. No, the gospel it reaches out to all people, all corners of the earth. And if you live by the Spirit, you are called to participate in the work of this kingdom. 
The gospel is about making God's name known and exalted to all humanity because he alone is worthy. As the band comes back up, I want you to think about your posture. Are you living under the spirit? Or are you living under a law that you have crafted that really makes you a slave to sin and death? As Paul said, there's only two options. You can only live one of two ways. Are you living under the gospel of Christ that is the power of salvation, not just for you, but for all? Or are you living under a gospel that allows you to stop at simply feeling good? Are you willing to put yourself in the position of a servant? By the power of the spirit, others might come to know Christ. Are you willing? And if you don't know what the position of a servant looks like, just read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. See how Jesus does it. But just remember, you can't do it as perfectly as him. And if you sit here and you still aren't quite sure about Jesus, then Dallas or some of the other church leaders or even I would love to work through those questions with you. But as we leave here today, if you confess Jesus as Lord, if you have proclaimed to the world that you live under the Spirit, I hope that we might all be challenged by Paul's words in chapter 1, um, as we read earlier, that we would not be ashamed of the gospel and that we might understand the scope of its power as the work of salvation. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that we all know how small we are, how small we are compared to you, who is the maker of heaven and earth, the one who is love and who calls us to be loved and to love. Lord, I just pray that we will all be properly challenged to follow you, to serve you, to glorify your name to the people around us. The fact that we are not separated from your love and can never be means that you are the only one worth following. And if we truly believe that, Lord, I just pray you will instill in us a passion to help others see the power of that love and to step into it themselves. Lord, may we remember that you are the you are the king, Lord. Everything that we do is just small and inconsequential compared to your work, but you have invited us to be part of that work. We just thank you for that, Lord. And I pray that we will just leave here positioned in your love, but ready to mirror your love to other people. Thank you, Lord, for your love and your goodness. In your name I pray. Amen.